0: Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for 1-8 ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's pacaso.com.
2: This crowd rises to its feet. But slammed it home. Garland left wing. Three ball. Perfect. Garland, part of the lane. Locked the moldly. Pow. And Allen blocked the shot at the rim. Pow with the left hand and a foul.
3: Welcome to the Chase Down podcast. Part of the Chaos Media family. I'm your host, Justin Rowan. The Chase Down is presented by Fubo TV. Watch over 100 channels of live sports and TV for half the cost of cable. There's no contract and no commitment. Try for free at FuboTV.com. As promised, no Carter Rodriguez this week. We're giving you listeners a little bit of a break, but to replace him, I brought in the big guns from Bleacher Report, host of one of my favorite national podcasts, Hardwood Knox, Dan Favelli, making his long awaited debut on the chase down, I believe. Dan, how you doing? I
4: am excited, stoked to be here, ready to tank your downloads. And it was look, I owed you been on the hardwood knocks. Like it probably like double digit times at this point, 10. So um I owed you more than one, that's for sure.
3: I honestly, this is 100 percent on me that I, I haven't had you on. I, I don't have an excuse. I don't even have a rationale. There, there's there's just no excusing it. I I I apologize profusely and uh, if you can hear me, I'm sorry. But, uh, we're, you know, <laughs> any listeners of the Levitars show probably get that reference. Uh, you know what? Honestly, going into last night's game, because we're recording this on Thursday night. I kind of was expecting the worst because the the Cavs have been inconsistent lately. Uh, They have really struggled on the road, and they came away with one of their best road wins in a very long time. Obviously, the win in Boston without Darius Garland stands out as probably the best road win that they've had this season. But given their struggles, getting the monkey off their back and getting a signature win, blowing out the Dallas Mavericks, who have been a lot better at home, very similar to the Cavs, was a really, really impressive win. Dan, what stood out to you looking at that game and the Cavs finally getting back on track with the signature road win?
4: I'll have you know, I went back and watched stuff from that game just specifically for this podcast because I've had an overexposure to the Mavericks this season, and that was just a game (laughs) that I was like, I needed to pass on.
3: That's that's Um, dedication. Thank you.
4: Right um but yeah so i think what's huge is you have donovan mitchell obviously it felt like their half-court offense was just more coherent and that's really they've had one of the best half-court offense in the league this year and on the road it's just like imploded over the past month or so Mm. um and a lot of it seems like decision making a lot of it seems like guys missing shots that they normally wouldn't um but donovan mitchell being huge and then lamar stevens just absolutely going back and watching some of the stuff that he did was a monster on defense for them i thought They did a really good job of just pressuring Luka on the defensive end overall. And if you make life difficult on him, you make your whole life a lot easier. And then I think, I can't remember as the Cavs made the run in, or not the Cavs, the Mavs made the run in like the third quarter or whatever it was, being able to withstand that and not just sort of like wilting and and blowing another lead down the stretch because clutch time has not been kind to them on the road over the past month either. And so... I think kind of avoiding that situation altogether probably helps them. But Lamar Stevens specifically, I think, was uh, that stands out as something like, oh, if he's going to be able to, no, not do that on a nightly basis, but if you're going to be able to get that type of defensive effort and then offensive just scalability from him, um, it's going to make you at least miss Dean Wade a lot less for now.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought it was probably the best game Lamar has had this season. Um, re- Really impressed with him on the defensive end. And this is the second time he's done this in, in kind of a marquee matchup. The the Cavs put him on Giannis the, the first time they played in Milwaukee, and he did a great job in that game. And I, I was just really impressed with his off-ball movement because I, I kind of feel like over this recent stretch, With Kevin Love out, Dean Wade out, Donovan Mitchell out, obviously you're missing a lot of spacing, and I I think that might be one of the causes of the offense getting a little stagnant, but Lamar was moving off ball a lot better. Like, Dallas was completely ignoring him the same way that most teams have been ignoring both he and Okoro, and Lamar made them pay for that. He was cutting baseline, getting the possessions in the dunker spot, and making them pay, but you're right. I, I, I honestly think this really comes down to Donovan Mitchell, because... Uh, Chris Fedor had had reported this after the Spurs loss. How Mitchell, when he found out that the the Cavs still had a timeout after he got that offensive rebound uh, under the basket, was just really beating himself up and was kind of beside himself, apologizing profusely. And this is another one of those games where, whether it's the the showcase game against the Lakers or or some of these other marquee matchups that the Cavs have had this season where Mitchell just kind of shows the value of experience, the the just the fact that he's been there before and he, him being such a big-time performer. And I, I really thought he set the tone early on, and everyone else just kind of fell in line from there. I, I was just, I'm so impressed by him, and I, I continue to be insanely wrong about Mitchell. Like, I, I was excited after the trade, but my perception of him coming into this season, I, I just, I think I, I was entirely too low on him.
4: It's funny how I think perceptions of players can change if they're on teams that grow stale or viewed as underachieving. I think mm. that kind of uh, butchered how people viewed him. I think, look, you go back and watch this game, and I know the Mavs look different now, but the way that Dallas was trying to actively attack and roast Mitchell in the playoffs last year, without Luka Doncic, like it was Jalen Brunson trying to carve him up, and the, the the extent to which it was working, juxtaposed against what you watched on uh, Wednesday night is just like that's like yeah his offense has been incredible we knew he was an incredible offensive player did we think that he was going to be the best high volume off the dribble three point shooter in the league this season i probably <laughs> wouldn't have predicted it um yeah. being right up there with steph curry but the defensive effort from him and just how much, even if you don't want to go as far as saying like he's been useful because I still think that the Cavs could use more point of attack options defensively. uh, He's just not been like this monstrous liability uh, relative to what we've watched in Utah really over the past two seasons. So that was almost just the, that's, I mean, and that's not even just the Dallas game. Like that's just stood out constantly whenever I'm watching the Cavs this season.
3: Yeah. And Honestly, it's one of those things like I've been doing this for a while, podcasting, blogging about the NBA and like the more kind of experience I get, the the more NBA seasons I see, like the less confident I feel like talking about players and stuff like that. Like I just I kind of have more of an understanding and of appreciation of just how little we can tell from the outside, because when I'm looking at Utah getting stale uh, towards the end there, it's okay. If this guy wasn't happy on, on one of the best teams in the Western Conference and uh, has talked about his desire to to play for the Knicks, who who weren't in the playoffs uh, last season, like is he about winning? Is he about the right things? And it's so clear that he is right. Like it, the the fit in Cleveland has been so seamless. He's been willing to be a part of the team instead of like this is just completely my show. Like obviously he's got that that. Uh, that alpha dog mentality where he'll step up in these moments and really kind of help them in these games where they can really use that kind of a performance. But he's been a part of a collective. And it it just goes to show like, there's so little that we can really ascertain from the outside. And um, I just, I I continue to be incredibly wrong about him. And I, I really think it's valuable. Like, We've talked about in the past, like what Ricky Rubio brought to the table, both helping Mitchell when he was in Utah, helping Garland last season. I think having someone like Mitchell around that knows how to elevate and prepare for these big games, like, obviously, it's pretty straightforward. You're having a marquee game, you want to step up and have a big game. But just being there to provide insight to Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen of how to prepare for these games, how how to really kind of put the work in that that helps pay these dividends in these moments. I think that's really valuable because experience is something that this team is still at a deficit with. I also
4: think it's probably that's definitely valuable. But from Mitchell's perspective, there's got to be value in. And I think if you, you know, and you were probably one of the people that did, but like there's a tendency among fans and even some media members, like they're not following it closely enough amongst the local media. And if you talk to them or read them, like you kind of understood that Donovan Mitchell was not like this locker room cancer or necessarily all about him. But I also think like going into a different environment where you're forced to, even if you think you're or are the best player on the team, like you're forced to adapt and adjust. And this isn't what you've known your entire career. I would have to think that gives him. A different perspective and it's going to make him more open to change because you don't want to be the issue that stands out and so it's like you know it's quid pro quo there where it's that's what the Cavs are sort of doing for that. and they're surrounding him with talent where look Darius Garland specifically just they never gave Donovan Mitchell in Utah a safety valve like him to where Mitchell is like when he's needed to play make this season he's done a really good job looking back to that stretch where Darius Garland was out for the most part but like Darius Garland streamlines Donovan Mitchell's responsibilities in ways that the Jazz, even when they had Mike Conley, never really could. Maybe in part because they, it always seems like they were dealing with one or two injuries. Um, but the Cavs allow Donovan Mitchell to do that. And so I think it's been a really good fit from that perspective. And it's like you said, as much as people got on Donovan Mitchell and as much as people believe that the bubble was fake basketball or whatever, like he has just come up huge in big time games time and again it's like yeah he's fallen apart before but also the fact that he was in that position to be in those big games says a lot about how one how good he is and then you've mentioned experience a bunch of times i've grown as as i feel like i know less about the nba each and every year almost like you which is fairly problematic when you're tasked with covering it full time (laughs) um you you do develop this level of appreciation for experience and finding the known quantities where you can and it's like i knew donovan mitchell was this known offensive quantity that i think he was going to be maybe as scalable or plug and play as it feels like he's been in cleveland um maybe not but you grow an appreciation for like oh this guy's been in the big games and i'm not going to be someone who says oh the pelicans aren't contenders because they haven't been there or done that before but it definitely matters to me that the Cavs are able to acquire someone like mitchell who won so obviously filled their biggest void if you watched them towards the end of last season yeah. and two it's just been in those Huge games before, and so nothing, you know, making the final, sure, but like beyond that, like it's not going to be new to him, and so I, I have no doubt that that's probably huge behind the scenes, especially for a young core like the Cavs, where even last season, and you know, uh, Cavs fans in our Discord say this, like the vibes are always immaculate, and it seems like these guys actually want to learn, enjoy being around each other, and so when you have that mindset versus this stale nature that was in Utah, where it felt like everybody was grading on everybody, and you're dealing with, you know, not different generations overstates it, but like guys who maybe weren't necessarily on the side, like Joe Ingles was a million years old before he was traded <laughs> from, from Utah. Ditto did over Mike Conley being there and coming in. So that I wonder if that sort of helps for like that, that gap in timeline or just gap in ideology or just place you're at in your career where it's not really as, as enormous or if it's just a matter of like you're not dealing with the ego clash of a uh, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert and it's there's no Darius Garland doesn't seem like a guy who has ego he's also already been paid so he's not playing for his next contract he doesn't have people saying he's overrated like Obert did so um it just feels like a confluence of circumstances that maybe I specifically didn't consider going in that made this even more of a perfect match than like you and I did a podcast on it afterwards when you came up with the outlook I'm I was in love with the trade and you like you said you weren't you're higher on it now than you were before but you were pretty like showering it with praise as well so the fact that it's exceeded even what was pretty optimistic expectations is pretty wild
3: yeah and i remember when we had tony jones on like like you said talking to the local bead right and and getting some of that behind the scenes you you get a better feeling for it and just you have to imagine right like he took ownership of some of those struggles too, right? Like he, he talked about how he wasn't in good enough shape and how he wanted to commit himself to both ends of the floor. And uh, sometimes when you had that change of scenery, you're rejuvenated and it's not the fault of anybody there. Or, uh, and um, it just kind of runs its course, like we see that time and time and again that things can grow stale in the NBA, and uh, being around a bunch of guys that are closer to his age, too, right? Like that's that's going to make a difference. And uh, even though they the Cavs don't have the wing playmaking, uh, that the Jazz did with, with Boyan and and ingles you have more kind of dynamic big men, right? Like the Evan Mobley's passing in the short role was massive against Dallas. Like a, a lot of those Lamar dunker spot feeds were because Mobley's processing speed as he catches the ball, he automatically sees Lamar. He makes the right pass. The, the big, the big passing that they have. Like, I really do feel like as good as Mitchell has been, the key to the Cavs and their identity is, is when offense is running through the big men. Because there are going to be limitations when you have shorter guards as your best players, right? Like, it, there, there's just things that the defense can do to Garland and Mitchell that you wouldn't be able to do to, like, a Jason Tatum or LeBron James or Kevin Durant. And to the Cavs' credit, and I, I think everybody watching the situation has pretty consistently said, the development of Evan Mobley is going to be key for that because even though they don't have that playmaking forward at the wing, you have it at the power forward or, or you have a raw version of it in Evan Mobley. How has Mobley's season kind of what's your feeling with him so far this year? I've
4: been, I think happy and impressed with the extent to which he's been able to branch out on offense within the context of having Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell both Mm -hmm. there and it's I would still like to see moments where maybe things are being run for more he's more aggressive as a scorer but you've already mentioned like the short roll passing and the way he's able to pass there in general trusting him to decision make with the ball in his hands even if it's not directly leading to an assist but someone who's attacking or if like the moves he's using there was a stretch where he was like lights out too on hook shots this year and so I'm He's still, I think when you look at some of the numbers, like the metrics aren't catching up to how good he is, but I was just having this conversation with my co-host Grant Hughes that he is very much, when you watch it, even the plays that don't come together, that is the it guy. And it's, you know, jump ahead, I don't know how many years. But it. I, I know that the best case scenario is he becomes the best player for this team, but it also sort of feels like when you watch him, the most likely scenario now is that a few years down the line, he is, in fact, if this core is still together, the best player for this team.
3: Wow, that that's high praise, and it's funny you mentioned the Cavs' struggles in clutch situations. Right this year, they they haven't been able to close out games as well as they would have liked. The Dallas game isn't going to go in that category. But it's one of those games where it still feels like they closed well because Luca was catching fire in the fourth quarter. They cut it to nine points. I believe the Cavs called a timeout at that point and then immediately went on a run to, to extend it to, to 15 and give themselves breathing room again. Sometimes the best clutch offense is preventing it from getting into that situation where all of a sudden it's a one or two possession game. Uh, where you're really kind of feeling that pressure, you're on the road, you're against one of the most talented offensive players the league has ever seen in Luka Doncic. Like That's certainly a situation, especially coming off that Spurs loss. Uh, and, and even the the two recent home games as well, where, where you kind of uh, made it a lot harder on yourselves than it needed to be. That's certainly a situation where you could see this team fold. So even though I think they showed resiliency here, I don't think that necessarily means we're not going to see those issues pop up again this year, right? Like when people talk about what separates the calves from that contender tier in the NBA experience is one of the biggest things. And that's not just something that's going to pop up in the playoffs, right? Like you're going to see that in the regular season. You're going to see kind of these spells where they just can't really figure things out. And, and the offense gets a, a little gunky at times, but At this point, we also are kind of at like this 30-game mark in the NBA. And even though some people think that the NBA season doesn't start until football season is over, after 30 games, you usually get a pretty good feel for who the playoff teams are. And unless there's some dramatic shakeup, this is kind of who teams are. And I'm curious, as we kind of reach this third of the season point, Do you feel like the Cavs have overachieved, underachieved, or are they kind of on schedule for where you expected them this year?
4: I think they're probably on schedule. I might have had them finishing third or fourth in the East. And so they're sort of right where I would expect them to be. I think mm. when you look at the margins that are separating them from literally everybody else below them, it's it's very tiny. And so there could be it's some ridiculously noise. Ridiculously
3: tight. I, yeah. I think that's why there's so much anxiety when the Cavs go through a funk, because even though you can say, oh, you, you're like three, four games out of first place. you are also four games out of ninth. Right.
4: Yeah, I'm I would say I've been pleasantly surprised where one, like I, I was just wondering how the defense was going to look when there was going to be churn at the three spot and you were going to play with the two small guards and Mitchell and Garland. Like that has it's the offense. We're talking about clutch struggles and their performance on the road. Like it's been the offense that is concerning you more than the defense there. Even with the offense overall, um, I thought there might have been more of it, and I don't know if it helped. Or if it was just indifferent, the time that Mitchell had a loan independent of Garland, like, did that do anything to sort of asher wage the, the transition? I don't know, but I've been pleasantly surprised for the most part how that has unfolded. I don't know if it's come together to a point where it's like, oh, the Cavs are like this juggernaut where it still feels, you know, and Dean weighs out right now. We haven't seen what Rubio does to the depth of this team. Um, so it does still feel like they are one player away from being like, if you want to crack the Milwaukee-Boston tier of title contention. But I also think like when we were talking about the Cavs as contenders, would we have said, oh, well, like, if you're going to mention Denver, Memphis, even New Orleans, like the Cavs are on that tier too. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if that's where they expected to be. I mean, the Mitchell trade is traditionally one that you make when you give up that much thinking that, but it was also such a move that was so clearly geared towards their bigger picture to say that they are a second tier contender. Even if that tier is just ultra crowded right now, it's probably akin to, um, you know, exceeding expectations at the moment. And the fact that, They've gone through all these struggles since like I with well, the losing streak start on November 7th or whatever it was back then. Mm-hmm. And they are still third in the East, despite the margins like being so thin. <laughs> that counts for something. Like they're still there and
3: they've been there for quite a while now, I believe. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because it has felt uneven. But when you look at the overall averages, it is still encouraging. Like right now, they're 12th in offense, second in defense, second in net rating. The defense has traveled really well. They're second in road defense, they're second at home defense. Uh, they have the third best road net rating in the NBA, which seems ridiculous. That I because, did not know. And yeah, that seems wild. Yeah. That, like that that's like hard to kind of wrap my head around. I, I actually hadn't looked that up until like a second ago. And obviously that is really helped uh by how good their defense has been on the road because uh they're road offense drops from 12th at home to 15th on the road so uh it's not as dramatic as of a difference as I would have expected uh before I really dove into the numbers but I I do think even comparing it to last year where the defense didn't travel well where they were fourth uh in, in home defense and 12th in road defense like the fact that they're playing consistent defense I think that gives them a really steady floor and I also think The fact that the defense has been so good everywhere, it probably leads to some of the frustrations. Because if you go cold like this and you're almost any other team, you usually get blown out on the road. And there hasn't been a lot of those games. They've still hung around even though guys are really struggling and underperforming. And it comes down to one or two possessions at the end. And those results just carry so much more kind of emotional weight than the typical off night uh, where where you just get killed by 20 points in, in Milwaukee.
4: Yeah, that's a good point because, like, people are more tuned in because those possessions start to matter and they're more invested in them. And so you're taking more, you're paying more attention to what goes wrong. I was going to ask you, though, when you're looking at their road struggles, and they are 23rd in road offensive efficiency over the past um, since that, the losing streak I mentioned it on November 7th, their shooting has been just so atrocious from deep during that stretch. And specifically, what is going on with Darius Garland's road splits? there can you explain that to me and i couldn't i didn't have time to even like go go back watch every possession what's up but like they it's it is demonstrably worse than what he's been doing in cleveland
3: yeah for for people that are unaware uh right now darius garland is averaging 26 and eight at home uh on a true shooting percentage of 64.4 on the road he is averaging 16 and 7 Uh, with a forty-five, 46% true shooting percentage. So uh, that is night and day. And I I think when you look at some of the the road struggles, it's it's a situation where I feel like if you get even like a B-minus game from Darius Garland, you probably come away with a win. And it's so strange to me because you look at last season and this wasn't the case. Like his road home performances, there wasn't much variance to it. Um, Part of me kind of wonders because... The original kind of road struggle he had was that West Coast road trip they had at the start of the year. Uh, he was reportedly battling illness uh, when he was on that trip, playing through that and, and and struggled in some of those games. But looking at the splits further, I kind of wonder if he's just having a bad December. Because in November, he was averaging 24 and 9 pretty much on really high efficiency. In December, whether he's at home or or on the road, He's struggling like he's averaging just shy of 17 points per game, uh, seven assists, and he just seems to be in a funk. And I don't know, like, it's hard to figure out the the correlation and the causation here. Like, is part of that, does that have to do with the fact that Kevin Love just missed a bunch of time? Dean Wade has been out. So you're losing two spacers there. And then Donovan Mitchell just missed two games. Like, I I don't know if, if that's part of it. It feels like he's also pressing a little bit more recently Um, The last couple games, I feel like rather than going to kind of his signature floater in the paint, uh, he seems to be taking it to the rim and trying to draw contact. And while that contact is there, he's still not great at selling those calls and seems to get really frustrated with the officiating and and the amount of contact that's being allowed at the rim uh, without a whistle. So I don't know if it's a combination of of pressing, if uh, the decrease in spacing recently has had an impact on it. But I kind of expect the home and road splits to normalize. But I do think that this December stretch, these seven games where, where he's kind of really struggled uh, from the field overall, I think that's probably more to do with it rather than him just really feeling comfortable in Cleveland versus every other city in the NBA. Yeah, the decline in shooting is a good point, too, where it's you're missing
4: guys who's space the floor. And even when like, you know, Kevin Love going, what was it over four from the floor in the Dallas game? um he still has some
3: gravity right
4: (laughs) right um so that has to help but like even just sort of like the the decline of the karis levert fit and his shooting splits hurting like i do wonder how much that might shrink the floor for him or at least tighten up the spaces or make him second guess what what he's doing in general
3: yeah I, i completely agree but dan do you know one thing i never second guess It's the support we get from Zoom. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Zoom. Half a million businesses connect using Zoom, a single platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video. Zoom enables real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects.
2: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) is he connecting to complimentary wi-fi oh my look at that he is and you will not believe where he's going
5: next the amex dedicated card member entrance for the win unbelievable when you get travel perks with amex platinum you're part of the action that's the powerful backing of american express terms apply learn more at americanexpress.com with amex hey everyone
3: it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call
2: Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
3: I, I do want to kind of get a sense for your feelings about the overall spacing because it's... It was tenuous to begin with, I think, going into this year, but I, I think they made a couple bets because when you trade for Donovan Mitchell, obviously you are consolidating some of your depth. Uh, you lose the, the floor spacing, Lowry marketing. and Colton Sexton was a good shooter. Ochai Abaji projected to be a good shooter, although I still believe he hasn't hit a three yet in the NBA uh, in Utah, um, but it, it just it really feels like the, the Cavs are still missing a, a a decent amount of functional spacing. And um I, I feel like a couple of the the gambles that you made in that consolidation was one top end talent's the hardest thing to acquire in the NBA. So when you have that opportunity, you jump on it and, and figure out the rest later. But the other things was I think Dean Wade uh kind of projected to be a bigger part than he has been. Uh I think the fact that he hasn't has more to do with injuries than his own performance, uh, which has been unfortunate. And then also Dylan Windler, um w- was having a great training camp. And I think they expected to, to get a little bit out of him uh, after last season, him finally getting healthy, playing 50 games. And uh, you, you know, maybe they, there was some hope that he would be able to fill out the spots. Do you, do you feel like some of the Cavs' inconsistency has to do with their personnel or do you, st- I think it just has more to do with uh, the the players being younger and and still going through some of the growing pains.
4: I think I might still argue it's more of the latter, and maybe even throwing in just there's been a stop and start feel to their season where it begins with the Garland injury. You said you know you have Mitchell missing a couple games, but also just like you know Dean Wade losing the option there, trying to figure out what's having to go on with the three spot. I do think the functional shooting though is a concern overall, and it's something that I you know I throw back at you because. Our tagline at Hardwood Knox is trying to be the least sufferable national podcast out there. And so we try and really tune into like what the fans want to talk about when it comes to their local team because we don't want to be regurgitating the t- same storylines. I thought this year was going to be spent ignoring the three spot or talking about how overrated it was. Fans seem genuinely concerned about what the Cavs should do there. And they've tied so much of their just our listeners of their struggles to just the not even if it's not even uncertainty but just like the talent they have available at the three spot is not the talent that's going to plug the holes we're talking about with Cleveland and I do think it's such a hyper focus because one four of your spots in the crunch time unit are locked down so that's just the only spot to really focus on in the rotation and it doesn't seem like Karis LeVert is necessarily going to be the answer I think it it could be Dean Wade when we're talking about three point volume or, or functional shooting and by that I mean like really scoring a ton off movement or quick fire movement, maybe even creating for yourself a little bit. It does feel like the Cavs have a deficit there. I am wondering to you though, and I haven't been able to figure it out because the Cavs are just so good already, whether (laughs) that concern is overstated or if this is something acquiring a player who adds the functional shooting. I'm not talking a star. I'm just talking Mm. someone who injects some three point volume and accuracy into the half court offense specifically. Is that something that could really push cleveland to the next level or again like i said is this concern sort of overstated when you're looking at where the genesis of some of these struggles are coming from and then just how good the gas have been anyway
3: yeah i don't think it's necessarily overstated because i think it's just a function of them once again kind of overachieving right like the fact that they're so good already kind of makes you want from a roster construction standpoint to remove any impediments that are, uh, kind of might slow the growth, right? Because I I think if you had a, a consistent shooter out there that just kind of fits and do, doesn't really do a ton but just alleviate some of the pressure that uh those four can have because um Mobley and Allen really don't have that outside game like i think it just makes it easier to evaluate them it, it it makes the the growth and development process a whole lot easier um and i i agree like it it I think it would work with Dean Wade. I, I think on paper, that was the fit that made the most sense because not only does he just kind of know his role and, and have a good understanding and feel for the game, but he he's also a forward that can defend on the perimeter and rotate down and protect the rim, which uh, seems to be the key to NBA defense these days. You need to have at least two of those guys that can do that on the court at all times. And I definitely feel like his impact has really been felt. Or, or uh, his absence, uh, you, you kind of feel the impact of that, but you also it kind of reveals the fact that you're in a position where losing Dean Wade can really have an impact on your season, and that is a fragile place to be in, right? Like you, you don't want that to be the case, and I think Lamar has done a good job overall uh, stepping up. But Lamar was someone that wasn't in the rotation to start the year. The right. competition for the small forward position was Karis LeVert, Isaac Okoro, and Dean Wade. And I, as much as the Lavert experiment didn't go great, that still was a net positive lineup. And it has been a net positive for them. Uh, just looking at the cleaning the glass stats, it was uh, plus 2.3. But I, I do feel like, a lot of the issues kind of came on the offensive end, which was really not expected because that lineup has a 104.9 defensive rating, which is fantastic, but a 107.2 offensive rating. And um I, I kind of see now now that Mitchell's back and, and the rotation is a little more normal. Karis Levert seems to be finding his groove as that six man, and it seems to be a role that's really tailor-made for him. It's just trying to get that starting lineup to work with Lamar Stevens. And, and so far, Uh, With the exception of the Dallas game and one other game, uh, that lineup has largely been in that negative and has really hurt them at the start of games. And I I don't think that necessarily has to do with Lamar. Maybe it has to do with just like the absence of continuity, because I'm looking at it now. Right now, Garland, Mitchell, Allen and Mobley have only played 308 possessions together this season that is really low like that's as half mm. as many a, as the warrior starting lineup has played this season of course cleaning the glass um removes garbage time so we have to add that disclaimer to that stat but man like i, I just feel like sometimes it, it's hard to assess what the personnel issues are when you have just so little continuity throughout the the course of regular season like it, it's hard to like if these are the sample sizes we're dealing with How can you even draw a conclusion from any of these lineups? You can't. And
4: I think it's probably tougher for teams that are trying to do, especially in this case, you're trying to do two main things and that's develop like these younger players that are on your team that are not finished products, even the, even the great ones like Darius Garland and Evan Mobley. And you're also integrating this huge new piece in Donovan Mitchell. And it's changed the complexion of your team. And so where a team like the Warriors, for instance, like you can trust if Steph comes back from a shoulder injury in a few weeks, that starting lineup should still be great. They have such a long-standing uh, relationship on the court with each mm-hmm. other. And it was the same like, oh, how are the Warriors going to integrate Clay when he comes back? Like they're we just know it. Like they've done it so many times before. The Cavs never have like really not gotten that feeling out process at full strength. And it's been, you know, it's and in the regular season, it's always something, but to not even have like Con- I don't know how many possessions like the Dean Wade starting lineup has played, but when you have your four best players only playing 308 possessions together. So it's going to be lower uh, than 11. that, which means that it's, uh,
3: yeah. the Dean Wade played 11. Um, the Okoro has played 20. The Osman has played 26. Uh, I was mistaken. 308 is without Lamar Stevens. That's how many the, the those four have played. And here's another like kind of small sample size theater thing. You look at the, the 308 possessions that the core four has played uh, without Uh, Lamar Stevens they have a plus 5.5 net rating in those minutes and they are in the 97th percentile defensively you add Lamar Stevens who's a good defensive player all of a sudden their defensive rating drops to 113.7 in the 45th percentile and they're a negative 2.1 overall like I I just don't know if we can take anything away from this but it's it's just interesting to me that This lineup change with Lamar going into the starting lineup, even though that lineup hasn't worked overall, they have been winning more games. And I I just I don't know what to do with this information at this point.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to see, like, what is the noise on opponents shooting then in the lineup that, you know, because Lamar Stevens is in there and I'm I'm looking, I guess opponents are shooting 40 percent from three when Lamar Stevens is part of that starting lineup. So like, that's a number where I don't think the Cavs are doing anything to just welcome 40 plus percent shooting from three. There's There's got to be luck caked in there. And so it's interesting because we are deeper into the season when you're dealing with stop and start um, issues like the, the Cavs are and availability and just changes to some of what would be your core lineups. Um, there are a few things that could just very easily skew the data. And then on top of Having so many different iterations of information when you're looking at combinations of who's been available and what they've tried in those minutes, it it sort of confounds it even more. And I think it makes it tougher to judge what they are at full strength. I will just say, even if it Dean Wade is mostly the answer, the point that you really hit on to me is just like, you don't want to be in a position where a Dean Wade injury is what derails so much of your season, if you get to the playoffs or, you know, even right before the playoffs, and that would be my my primary concern there. But when you're a team this good, the roar that we keep throwing around is information. I still feel like there's so much I don't necessarily know about the Cavs, despite having a good feel for thinking that, well, I know what this team does well. I know what they're able to do defensively for the most part. I know what their half-court offense is capable of at, at even half tilt when things are going, um, but they have... And I think it's a it's it's a pleasant unknown, even if it's a frustrating unknown. There's another gear for this team to get to, whether it's looking outward and finding improvement for the three spot or just putting together a string of performances once Deed Wade comes back, where your best five man unit gets to be your best five man constant for like a month or something. Like I know things prop up in the regular season, but this year and other teams are dealing with a ton of injuries. But this is just, you know, we're talking about a lack of a sample size. Um, with some of what should be, again, their most important units leading into the playoffs.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's probably the the aspect that's most frustrating to me. Like this season so far has 100% been a success. Like if this continues for the next 50 games, uh, we're laughing. Hosting a home playoff series uh, exceeded all expectations and uh, I'm I'm feeling really good about where they're at. But just from an analysis standpoint, it is difficult that there has been so little continuity that there, there's been guys in and out of the lineup and, and it really does make the analysis difficult like even something like uh Jetty Osman who blew <laughs> he blew a backdoor cut against Doug McDermott in the Spurs game and was probably benched after that and and then play against the, uh, the Mavericks which um I, I believe JB Bickerstaff um I, I was listening Locked on Cavs I, I didn't have the chance to, to see it all but um, just mentioning, you know, he's got to earn the minutes and, and, uh, kind of understand the assignment. And, uh, obviously we're not going to be privy to exactly what each player's expectations are and whatnot, but, um, th- there, this has been kind of a recurring theme with Jetty where he plays really well and then makes a couple decisions either on or off court, where we don't know that that seem to lead to him losing playing time. And, and for a team as top heavy as the Cavs, I feel like you can't really take a rotation player out of the rotation. Um, but at the same time, it seemed like the message worked and they got a quality win against the Mavericks. So I have a tough time figuring out exactly what to to make of the Jetty Osman situation where you have a guy that is a helpful rotation player, but he's also a guy on a partially guaranteed contract for next year, which could be appealing in the trade market. And I almost feel like at some point you have to kind of make an assessment of are we going to live with the ups and downs of this player or do we have to make a decision? Because uh, right now the Cavs, all they really have to offer as the trade season opens up is these expiring contracts. But the tricky thing for them is all these expiring contracts are tied to useful rotation players that are part of their rotation. It's it's Kevin Love, it's Karis LaVert, it's Jetty Osman. All of those guys have contributed to winning. And I just... It, it really does make for kind of a, a difficult situation where I can't figure out exactly what the, the value is going to be, what the market's going to be. And if they're better off holding on to these guys and, and just hoping that more reps together makes it function better as a unit.
5: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for or the perfect table. Hey, where are you?
6: Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum41, 30 Seconds from Mars. Oh, and two Door Cinema Club.
4: Yeah, that's a good point. I I guess I will say being in a position where it feels like you're trying to, even if let's say they know who their fifth best player is at this point, um, trying to constantly figure out your sixth or your seventh best player, where it feels like that's just on this um ceaseless churn. That can be a real headache. And you know you mentioned like these players on expiring contracts are tied to useful players. The thing I have started to wonder is just, and it's again, it comes back to frustration because you're not gonna know without Ricky Rubio there. But if he returns, does that just make Karis LeVert inherently yes less useful to this mm-hmm. group? Because there, there's already overlap when you look at what Karis LeVert does best. And now you throw someone in who's higher IQ just as a passer, but is, also needs to be more ball dominant for the most part in Ricky Rubio. If you expect him to play important minutes, um, you threaten to either marginalize Karis LeVert's spot in the rotation, or you hurt his value to your team because he's still playing, but it's not under the the optimal fit. Because right now, like him, you know, being someone who's in these bench heavier units, and yeah, you can sprinkle in some time when he's on with the four best players. It makes a ton of sense. But like when you're talking about him playing bench heavier units, and Ricky Rubio is you know the other player on the court for that, like you really need to open up the floor, which is something that they've struggled to do um, as it is through availability or even just the talent that's on their roster and so he's the guy that I've looked at because I think that he would probably have the most appeal to a team that's looking to get better without giving up the farm and I do believe if you think Ricky Rubio can make an impact this season even if you don't you have Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland like between uh-huh. staggering them and knowing that they're going to be on the court together during your highest stakes moments in the playoffs does it just make him um not I guess not it, it still makes him expendable but yeah would you rather trade a Jenny Osman than him sure but just because he's going to actually have, I think, more appeal around the league, that's the player that I found myself constantly uh, thinking about when it comes to if the Cavs are going to improve or even if you want to, say, slightly shake up this roster. He feels like the, the 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 starting point there.
3: Yeah, and it's one of those things where I think people, when they talk about the NBA, they become a little too transaction obsessed. Like, I, I think, like, you go into an offensive funk. Like, I've, I've seen people tweeting on Twitter, obviously uh, that the Raptors struggles, they should fire Nick nurse. Cause he, he's the reason that the offense doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. And to me, that's always seemed like a personnel issue. Why, why they don't have a good half court offense, but um, like like it always gets blamed on either you put it on a coach or you, you trade a player. Like uh, you, you let's cycle guys in and out uh, rather than trying to look at what can actually be done internally. And the Karis Levert, as much as I don't like focusing on transactions, when you have expiring contracts and Karis LeVert, uh, Kevin Love, Jetty Osmond, like you have to make evaluations of, OK, do we feel comfortable riding this out for the season? Do we we want to pursue an extension? Do we, we evaluate the trade market in? You're right. Like it does seem like Harris is getting more comfortable recently and has been playing a whole lot better but some of that does seem tied to the fact that he gets to have the ball in his hands a little bit more in the second unit. And I think it's a valid question to say, is that going to continue when Ricky Rubio's there? But as far as a trade standpoint, like I, I don't love speculating on it because if I would have told you that the Cavs could get Jared Allen for Dante Exum and the bucks first, you, you would look at me like an insane person. Like it, it's so hard to tell what most trades that go through, If they would have been, like, tweeted out on Twitter a screenshot of it beforehand, everyone would shoot it down as unrealistic. And But I I do feel kind of confident saying that if they are going to make a trade this season, I can't really see it being with, like, a rebuilding team because they don't have any first-round picks to offer, which first seem to be devalued at this point in the NBA. And you really kind of have to find, like, a team that values getting a rotation player back while also prioritizing getting off of money. And there's not a lot of teams like that. Uh, The the Clippers jump out to me as a team that has a ton of wings because they've hoarded every wing in the NBA. And uh, a lot of them are long-term money, and maybe they value getting some ball handling back. Um, But it's just not a straightforward thing. And I don't think it's as easy as saying, okay, go out and get a, a, a small forward that can play defense and hit three pointers because honestly, that has been a consistent struggle for this franchise outside of LeBron James for like the last couple decades. There's as like three and D because it's simplified to that phrase sounds like something that's just out there and easy to find, but it really is a hard thing to, to find in the NBA
4: to say the Cavs need functional shooting on the wing is like to apply a need that pretty much every single team in the league has. Right. And so that's what makes it difficult. And I think, you know, the other thing that I'm not sure that people have fully adapted to is, you know, when I started covering the NBA like 10 plus years ago at this point, everything was really geared towards transactions. It was teams planning out years in advance for free agency. And so I think that's part of why the league is covered the way it is but, like free agency isn't what it once was. And now with the expansion of the play in tournament, so many teams, they might have different angles when you're talking about the postseason, but they fancy themselves playoff hope holes. Even if the definition isn't the same, like if it was the Kings are better than this, but like if the Kings were in 10th, like they're going to be a team that's buying or actively not selling because they want to be in 10th and they want to make the play in. And so you're talking about how one, the Cavs aren't really built to do deals with sellers and there are just fewer sellers at this point in the season than I wouldn't say usual, but I think over the past few years, like we've just seen there aren't as many sellers just in, in general. And then if you're trying to make a move with a buyer, teams are going to be like eminently more cautious with the moves that they make because one do you want to help out another contender and even if that doesn't factor into it you want to be sure that it works because you don't want to compromise your position at all and so i think that makes it less likely that it's not just the calves that other teams can solve some of their biggest issues through the um the trade market i've also wondered if that's like why people attribute they're so i mean we even had a question on our last hardwood mail mailbag and it was from someone who didn't think that the Cavs should fire JB Bickerstaff but like there seems like a subset of Cavs fans that are unhappy with JB Bickerstaff like he is somehow able to manage this team better and I don't know like unless you have a problem with some of the like the the non-starting unit units or the creativity there I don't know how you assign one anything that's gone wrong to him specifically to the point where changing would do anything or how you're so like, why is that? Why is third in the East bad? I know expectations <laughs> come with a a microscope, but like you're third in the East. I don't care how small the 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 gap is between you and the rest of the conference. Like that's where you are. And we go back we go back to last year. We go back two or three years. The Cavs would kill to be in a slump, a slump mm. where they're playing 500 basketball. So
3: <laughs> yeah, like, they're they're six and four over the last ten.
4: <laughs> right. So it's just that's what boggles my mind, and why it's like they don't seem like a team that will do anything. To necessarily try and address it. Like, again, maybe it's on a smaller scale and all teams make moves. I will say you mentioned the expiring contracts. That is where it gets interesting, especially when they're players who are going to have a market and maybe not get like bonkers paid, but like a team will sign Kevin Love this summer and give him money. He's a very useful player. Um, Kairos LaVert will absolutely have suitors, and you've already committed money to Jared Allen and Darius Garland and, and, uh, Donovan Mitchell now. So you do have to have these conversations they don't have to define your entire season and i don't you know the yeah. other thing is is what the Cavs need most i just don't know if it's out there like maybe they can go out and get a luke Kennard from um la but like that might do some weird things to your defense i know like you've been able to play with different lineups here and two small guards but that's not going to necessarily help your defense they might I'll, have I'll to say change-
5: this
3: that that's shooting uh i'm i'm willing to take some chances man I'm. Um, <laughs> I'm they, they they have a great defense with Karis Levert at the three, right? Like right. They, they've been able to make it work with a whole lot of things. I, I just want to see, I, I would love to see just a pure shooter with them. What, what other, whatever shape size that comes in, like a, a don't shooter like that would be, you want that contract? Okay. Not maybe not every shape and size. <laughs> <laughs> There's some shapes and size. I'm less interested. in. <laughs> no, but you're right. And honestly, like, I do think and and this is getting a little sidetracked, but you were hitting on something that I've been thinking about lately, which is just it does seem like there's been a shift in the way that people consume basketball in general, where sometimes they're more of a fan of a player than a team. And um, people like really kind of go out on these hills and they they live and die on their takes and and they care so much about it. And um, like if a player they like is struggling someone has to be responsible for that. Like, we we have to blame the coach. We have to blame someone else, right? Like, they don't have the supporting cast, whatever the case may be. Or sometimes it's just struggles. Like, for me, I was on an island with Darius Garland early in his career, right? Like, I, I've been one, uh, one of the biggest kind of proponents of Garland over the last couple of years. And, like, a lot of the struggles for the Cavs recently is just, hey, if Garland plays better, they win that game. And these are the growing pains, right? Like the growth isn't always linear. You're going to have hot and cold stretches throughout the the course of a season. And when you try to add something to your game, sometimes that gets ugly when some, when you're trying to adjust to playing off of Evan Mobley as a playmaker or playing alongside Donovan Mitchell. um, Sometimes there's going to be growing pains within that. And, and that's part of like growing and becoming a leader is going out there and failing. I'm, I'm not insecure about the Cavs failing and having tough stretches because we're finally at a point, and I just feel so fortunate uh, as a Cavs fan to be at this point, where if this doesn't work out this year, we're still running back Garland, Mitchell, Mobley, and Allen. <laughs> this is going to be it for the next couple of years. Like It took Boston until last year to finally break through and get to the finals, but that first playoff run of that core was was against the Cavs in 2018. Like, this stuff takes time. This is how the NBA used to be, where you would have kind of these trials and tribulations. You, you'd you run into a wall. Giannis ran into a little, literal wall in Toronto in 2019 and eventually broke through. Like, this stuff takes time. It, you might be right in the long run, and your takes might be well-founded, but just because over the course of a week, a player that you believe in or a team you believe in is struggling... That doesn't mean you have to go to these extremes and someone has to be held accountable. Like you mentioned it at the top of the, the, the show, Dan, but like the Cavs having a good half-court offense with the limitations in functional space they have with the injuries they've had, the lack of continuity they've had. To me, that points to good coaching. The offense overperformed. It was a top five offense for like the, the first 20 games of the season. And the fact that it's fallen down to 12th Like To me, that feels more personnel-based and a result of some of the the growing pains of a young team rather than J.B. Bickerstaff forgetting what made the offense successful at the start of the year. Like To me, it feels like an execution and personnel thing more so than a coaching
5: thing. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge.
6: Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, some 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
4: And also, the other thing is just, there's almost comfort in knowing when you're mentioning, oh, if Darius Garland just starts playing better, they're going to be infinitely better. When it's, I would have said Darius Garland was their best player leading into this season. I think Donovan Mitchell's been their best player this season. That's not yeah. really up for debate. But when it's, what was your best player just a few months ago is the one who's struggling. And it's also, oh, hey, who's the guy on this roster at the top that's needed to make the most adjustments or where this process has been the least organic for, well, him, and it you know comes down to him missing the time with the injury too, like that robbed them of good yeah. reps together. But then also just like, he's the one that has to adapt functionally. I think more than Mitchell has needed to. And I think even, even more so than Mobley and the reactions are also, I would understand them from the perspective of, because we have started to see like windows in the NBA just shut Ones that mm. we thought were going to be open forever. I mean, the, we thought the Nets were inevitable. And look what they, I know they're near the top of the East now, but like, look, look what it became with James Harden after that, like how quickly that deteriorated. Look at how like the Warriors needed two gap years to prop this up. Um, Even look at the Celtics. It was, you know, they went over so many different iterations. Like you said, they made the first playoff run in 2018. It's very rare that you keep the core together that long to see it go again. And Utah's situation was rare where they had more cracks than it feels like a lot of other Cores would have gotten before they made the wholesale shakeup. At the same time, this is not the NFL. We're not talking about scarcity of sample actually being a meaningful sample. There are 82 Mm. games over a course of a season. And when you are trying to read stuff into small samples, or where it's not like, oh, it's the top of the roster, that like the top of the roster is set. We're trying to figure out how to flesh out the what the seven and eight spots in their playoff road that like and, and make them feel okay about that um but when you're working with such a small sample size over the course of such a large season I think there deserves to be more runway there it's okay I think there are people who overstate when a take is hot but there's just like this reaction to where it's like no every game in the NFL counts for like eight percent of your season or whatever it is like the NBA is just not like that and we're getting to the halfway mark but let's go back and actually look at okay you're rattling off the possessions that that lineup has played with the four best players and how much time they spent with different threes. It's not a lot. Like we're talking about, we're talking about tens of possessions, tens. That's nothing. (laughs) That is nothing. And so that's where I think it's like important as a fan as whatever media, it's not even me trying to like be demeaning to the fans who want to be reactionary. I get how sports fandom works, but it's also like sometimes you have to take a step back when it's, when you're in this favorable of a position, this is not like the Cavs are in the playing territory. This is not, oh, we have questions about any of the top four players on our rosters. This is what the Cavs are dealing with right now, both internally and externally for their fans, is a freaking luxury, <laughs> like what's happening right now. Yeah. And so that's what I constantly come back to with them. But I again, I do understand if you're concerned that this window might be transient because you've seen others shut and you know things come up. And you can, you can almost sort of sense it where... I think Boston and Milwaukee are in a tier of their own as title contenders. And, and Milwaukee at this point, um, that's probably more born from trust than than what I've actually seen this year. But they're in team. And, tier and of their
3: own. honestly, they're probably the two best teams in the NBA, right? Like the, the Cavs would probably have a legitimate shot at the one seed if they were in the West this year.
4: And, and that is the thing, though, is after Milwaukee and Boston, it is so wide open that I could sense the urgency where it's, okay, this was kind of a long-term gambit with Mitchell. But the Cavs, if you told me the Cavs came out of the East, right now like I wouldn't you know I'd probably be like well that's not what I would predict but it's totally a plausible outcome so I get that expectation impacting how people view it but we also have to like let's keep this in proper scale there's still more than half the season to go they haven't had a chance to look um at some of the lineups that are going to be most important enough and if you get to you know we're still I know the unofficial start of trade season which is really the start of nothing it's just the start of trade rumors yeah. Yeah. is all this that's all <laughs> it is um we're still almost two months away from the deadline and so if you don't have that sample by February 9th ish, like that's when you go and you decide whether to make those changes or if you actually get more information the next seven or eight weeks and it's not working. Let's just see it and be like if you're I don't want to say be happy, but like just be comfortable knowing, oh, this team is still really good, even though it's imperfect. Yeah, like that's not hard to that's not a hard conclusion to draw. And it's also not. It's not the wrong one. It's not. I'm not here as a Cavs homer. thinking I didn't pick them to win the title. I think I had them fourth in the East. I might have had them for fift- to win fifty games, but like, I'm just watching this season unfold, and in a season that's been rife with uncertainty, when you look at availability from all these teams, I like I told you before, I just have less of a feel for what's like trying to figure teams out than I can. The Cavs have probably been one of the more consistent watches that I've actually seen in in the NBA, and so I think that's there's probably real value in that when you look at the way the current landscape is is unfurling.
3: Yeah, I mean. Looking at it, the Cavs have the most double-digit wins in the league. Like the the fact that their road net rating is so good, they have this many double-digit wins. Like, I I think it really is kind of the shifting of expectations and also just a muscle memory thing. Like the last time the Cavs went from rebuilding to really good. There were big-time expectations because it was a LeBron James window that you know is short. He's on a one-year contract. It's If you don't win the championship, it's a failure. Whereas this season, like e- even if they were to like somehow bring in a, a really solid wing at the small forward position... I just like I have so much respect for the amount of experience you need um just the the fact that everyone is so young on this team like I would not pick this team to win a championship. I would love for them to prove me wrong, uh make me look stupid, play this clip back at me. I'm going to have the most fun with it if I'm wrong. But what what I really want to see from the supporting cast and, and whether that's from internal improvements from guys like Dean Wade uh, getting healthy and Jetty Osmond, Lamar Stevens, Isaac Okoro, and everyone else uh, contributing and, and stepping up. I want the supplemental talent to at least provide enough help to that core four, where if they come up short in the playoffs, it's because there's still growth necessary for Evan Mobley, Darius Garland, Jared Allen, Donovan Mitchell, where, Defenses aren't able to completely cheat off the small forward and do things defensively that you wouldn't be able to do against a a normal roster and it makes it harder to evaluate that that playoff sample size like you don't want it to be basically Steph Curry in 2019 where everybody went dead and they just go box and one. Uh, to take him away, and it's so hard to evaluate anything, right? Like, you want the supporting cast to be good enough where it becomes the, – the onus is really on that core to to work on their own games and, and to overcome the hump. Like, that's that's what I really want to see from this team. But before we get you out of here, I do want to ask you, as we're now at the kind of one-third mark of the season – for the next the the second third of this season, what would you like to see from the Cavs that, that would help you get a better feel for them? Uh, wh- whether it's kind of a, a record related goal or a development related goal, like what would you like to see as a next practical step uh, for this section uh, second part of the the regular season?
4: Oh, that's a great question. I I feel like I would like to see them get more experimental with Evan Mobley, and it's because I think I they clearly don't have a margin for error if you want to be locked into that three seed. But because they're good and they're a playoff team, just what happens if you throw Evan Mobley out basically on an island in these lineups that are just bench heavy and like he is just the guy, like the actual focal point where it's, no, I guess you shouldn't be sitting, in theory, you shouldn't be sitting Mitchell and Garland together together ever. But I think there's so much value in trying to plumb the depths of what he can do offensively. And it's not like, hey, let's put the offense at a standstill to feed him, like, let's actually let him process the offense even more where he is the one who's operating from like the, you know, it when you watch him play, he has like this zero step acceleration to where if you just give him the ball and he's like beyond the arc, like he can make things happen immediately, whether he's putting the ball on the floor or not from there. And I think I would like to see even more of that. I recognize that that might actually be unrealistic because of the way that the Cavs are. And I, like I said, at the top of this podcast, I've actually been impressed with, how much it feels like his offensive horizons have broadened or at least remained intact relative to how they're made up. But I just knowing how I think how important I think he is um, to this team's future, even relative to what's already in place. I'd love to see them get wacky and weird with how he's used and maybe even in some of the lineups he's used. And it's kind of like, you know, you've had enough availability issues where it's, is it really getting wacky and weird or could something just be born out of necessity at this point? <laughs>
3: you're not wrong and i definitely think getting healthier and and having the spacing around him to make that more possible would be really interesting because um i i find that the rotations to be fascinating because last year it was evan mobley's basically the backup center and this year it kind of feels like jared allen is functioning more in that role where they have donovan mitchell jared allen uh karis laverd jetty osman or whoever else kind of running that second unit and um, I, I do like that from the standpoint of if you feel so confident that Donovan Mitchell plus Jared Allen equals good offense and good defense for that second unit like th- those lineups are killer the, the bench lineups have been great for the Cavs all year. I do think it almost lends itself to that second Uh, squadron with Darius Garland and Evan Mobley you can get creative with that two-man game right like have them play off of one another let Mobley kind of be that second creator and really get some reps in there and I I definitely think getting someone like Dean Wade back would would be really helpful Uh, we'll we'll see what happens with Jetty Osman whether he gets more minutes in the rotation because they've been really good in the Jetty minutes it just seems to be a matter of him trying to not have those same kind of mental lapses on, on both ends of the court that it, it really seems like the, the team is willing to live with some mistakes from guys. Like it, it's okay. If you miss your shots, it's a, it's okay. If uh, guys hit shots over you or whatever the case may be, but it's more about if you're, My assumption would be it's more about when you just completely kind of forget what your role is within the scheme. Like, obviously, guys are going to have limitations and they're going to have defensive lapses. But it did seem like that breakdown where Doug McDermott got a a very easy backdoor cut on Jetty uh, was a bridge too far at that point.
4: To be fair, I feel like Doug McDermott might lead the NBA in easy backdoor. I don't know what it is about him where it feels like players just aren't in tune to that he's going to move. So, I don't really know if that helps or hurts Jetty's case, but he feels like he might be in the majority rather than the minority for that
3: specific player. Uh, I mean, when I said I want a shooter in any shape or size, uh, Doug McDermott definitely falls in that category. <laughs> I uh, was going to ask you I, I was co- I was coveting some Spurs wings in that game for sure.
4: Uh yeah, the Jay Rich and just Doug McDermott, like those Ooh. two were beyond perfect fits for this roster
3: Richard just absolutely killed them that that was a painful loss like when I, I talk about like kind of managing frustrations and all that trust me listeners I am frustrated as hell when that happens like I I'm really like I I wear my heart on my sleeve when I watch games. That's why I have to watch games the second time, because the first time through is usually so emotional. It's just when it comes to the podcast and when it comes to tweeting it out, I try to take that emotional part of my uh, my being and and just go more kind of solutions based. Let's get fair analysis. Let's talk about both sides of an argument rather than um, me just being an absolute lunatic watching a game.
4: I mean, I, I totally get, especially when it's the Spurs at this point in the season that they have had ever since they were off to that like rollicking six and two start. They have just been like, Not oh, really. they like, I, they might have already sent out like the women yama jerseys at this point <laughs> because those might already be on site.
3: <laughs> yeah. I, but at the same time, man, like it's crazy. I, I share how you feel about evaluating because there's, like, no transitive property when it comes to looking at NBA scores right now. Like, you can't say, oh, well, they lost to this team by sevens, but they're playing this team who struggled, so they'll probably win by five. Like, it's all over the place. Like, Houston's got a bunch of good wins. Orlando just swept the Raptors over the weekend and then beat Atlanta. Like, I, I don't... It's so hard to evaluate the NBA right now. And I, I think part of that is just a product of one offense is being better across the board. So if you go in a slump, teams are going to make you pay for that slump. And I just think talent overall is so much higher than it's ever been in the NBA. And that makes it really hard to have an off night. And I think the Cavs are fortunate that they just kind of have that defensive personnel that they've been able to hang around in all these games and and remain effective no matter where they are, even though there have been some road struggles.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm totally with you there. It's that, the league being more talented, being deeper, and also just, I don't know if it's more reactionary when you're looking at the coaching level, but it does feel like teams are more inclined to make changes, whether it's to their starting units or the rotations or there's just an influx of injuries and rest nights and that makes it harder to trap because you can't look at a game and be like okay you lost to the the spurs but like now you have to go and look if you didn't watch like okay well how many players didn't you know appear in that game for whoever lost to them or whatever like the warriors i I, I definitely
3: think i definitely think coaching in front offices are a whole lot better than they used to be because like when i was growing up it was like okay like there's still like Almost like the the good old boy clubs, where the, this guy's been around forever. He's made wild decisions, but you know it, it's it's just part of the team's legacy or whatever the case may be. Like it feels like there's less and less of that. And when you're talking about the the, the Cavs uh, as trade season kind of comes upon us, like trying to find a, a partner, it almost feels like in order to get it done right now, trades kind of have to be a win-win. Like, it's almost like fantasy football in a redraft league where you you are filling my needs and I'm filling your needs and, and this is helping both out rather than wildly one-sided trades. Like, that seems to be kind of more the status quo. Like, even the Donovan Mitchell I, I trade, I, I think, is a win-win where uh, the Jazz were at a different stage of their team-building process and the Cavs were able to consolidate and get a very special talent in Mitchell. Like, I, I think... In order for the cast to to pull something off at this trade deadline, it would need to be a similar thing where they are filling a need for another team and they're hopefully filling a need back.
4: Yeah, and I mean, the Jazz are a perfect example of why it's so tough to get a hold on what's happening in the NBA right now. Even though I think you look at their roster and it's like, oh, they were never going to be the worst team in the league, but you just assumed that they were going to make themselves. Like that Danny Ainge and Justin Zanuck were going to wheel and deal their way to the bottom and now they're like just in the playoff hunt and it's too late to there's talk about them being buyers and they're just heavily linked to john collins all of a sudden
3: and so i saw indy might be a buyer right they were linked to john collins in a recent report like sometimes i wonder if the nfl real has real parody or if it's just small sample size because like if you would have ended the NBA season after 16 or 18 games, like you're going to get some wild results. If you ended it now after 30 games, you're getting wild results. Like India is a seven seed. Uh, Like New Orleans is the one seed. Uh, Golden state isn't even in the playoff picture. Minnesota is not in the playoff picture. Like uh, Toronto Raptors are 10th, Atlanta's ninth. Like this is all over the place. I, I, it's, it really, really goes to show you just like how tight the margins are in the NBA right now.
4: Yeah, and how the narratives are changing. Like, think about what was being said about some of these teams. Like, oh, everyone was touting Atlanta's defense to start the season, and now it's like, oh, do they need to trade Trey Young? He clearly a coach killer, has leadership problems, and so just I, you know, you're talking about like the results would be so weird if we ended it now, and yet people still react like we're about to end it now. I think <laughs> it's like what I said. There's not a scarcity of product in the NBA, and yet opinions are formed like it is. Like it is the NFL where every single game counts for so so much. And I know games mean more, I think, than people think when you're looking they at They really it. do. The playoff field is 20 teams in a 30-team league now when you're factoring in the plants, so like the games are inherently more valuable, but at the same time, it's like we're dealing with 80 an 82-game season here. This is not a 17-game season.
3: I, I think Carter actually has the right point where he says the, the playoff field is now actually 12, right? Because it's only the six seeds that are guaranteed a playoff berth. So it really does, like, the regular season matters again. And, and I, I think we went away from that when Kevin Durant went to the warriors. Like I, I think that just broke everyone's brains and I think that's part of when the conversation started to get to transaction because it's like, well, it doesn't really matter what happens in the regular season. Like the warriors just won 73 games and they lost the title. Now they got Kevin Durant and nothing matters, right? Like everyone got really nihilistic with it. It really, really matters. Like I'm, I'm looking at the calves now um, after coming off that Dallas win, they have a really important home stretch here, Indiana, Dallas, Utah, Milwaukee, Toronto, Brooklyn, and then a quick road trip of Indiana, Chicago. Like there's a lot of Eastern conference teams and all of that's going to matter to the standings like them, uh, as much as we've talked about kind of the, the road struggles relative to the home. They're about to have a very, very, very important homestand and and how they do over this homestand is probably going to dictate where they end up in the standings because January is a tough month from them uh, from a scheduling standpoint.
4: And that's also bizarre because of all the games you listed, there's not a single just gimme like maybe Chicago, depending on how you feel about that. There's like not just a single gimme opponent on that list.
3: Yep. This is this is going to be a real test for them. Like you probably have to do well. Like I love that the NBA is scheduling it where you play the same team twice in a short period of time, like playing Dallas on Saturday, there's going to be adjustments. Uh, It's going to be really, really interesting to to see how that goes. Both teams are going to be third game in four nights. Dallas is a little bit of a disadvantage there because they have to travel in to Cleveland the the night after their game on Friday. So uh, I'm curious to see how that goes. But Dan, I've taken up way too much of your time. I I really, really appreciate this, buddy. I think it was much needed to kind of get an outside perspective on the Cavs. And uh, before I let you go, do you have uh, any parting thoughts, any wisdom for the Cavs fans here?
4: Oh, no, no wisdom for me whatsoever. Other than you guys are sitting in a really good position. And I this team is exciting to watch as an impartial bystander. And I wouldn't sweat literally anything that we've seen just yet. Like if we get into February and we'll start talking about these road struggles or that they don't have the the availability issues persist then yeah like let's we can approach it with emergency but right now you're, you're third in the friggin eastern conference <laughs> and you're in that second tier of title contenders and i think that's a that's a huge leap from last year and you're set up more so than most teams for this window to remain open and to build upon it even if this season is not going to play host to the ending that that you necessarily
3: want well, if I can impart some wisdom to our listeners, it's subscribe to the Hardwood Knox podcast because honestly, like I just don't have the time to to watch other teams as much as I used to, and uh, great national podcasts like yours are, are a big part of me actually staying somewhat in the loop. Al- although I, I will admit, I'm I'm in the dark. It, it is what it is. It's crazy so times. Crazy times. There's so so many games. So much real life stuff weighing on me these days, you know. But uh, we we get through it. And Dan, your podcast is absolutely one of my favorites. So big thanks to you. Big thanks to our listeners. Uh, we will be doing a mailbag episode on Sunday uh, after the the back to back, the home back to back against Indiana and Dallas. So very excited for that. Uh, we will be back on YouTube once Carter is back from his work trip. Uh, but everyone listening via podcast, you can support us by. Leaving a rating, leave a review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, and help cook those books. If you want to be part of the Chase Downs exclusive Discord chat, send a screenshot of that review to chasedownpod at gmail.com. However, you choose to support us, we really do appreciate it. Make sure you guys are staying safe out there. Until next time, go Kim.
0: Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home.